It's Thursday, October 14th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Confusion in Texas over vaccine mandates. Governor Greg Abbott just banned vaccine mandates for all entities in the state, including private businesses. This could pose a problem for many companies that contract with the federal government, since Biden has mandated that they do get vaccinated. Now, some companies are caught in the middle and could lose federal funding or run afoul of the state law. Mitchell Furman, economy reporter at the Texas Tribune, joins us for more. Next, the unemployment recovery in the country is still a bumpy and uneven one. There are still more jobs than there are unemployed people, and the pace of new hires was weak for last month. More women have dropped out of the labor force due to messy back-to-school rollouts and childcare issues, and lower-wage workers are waiting for new opportunities instead of going back to old jobs. Eli Rosenberg, labor reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for what we're seeing in the unemployment numbers. Finally, while the majority of migrants coming to the border are very poor and take long, perilous trips, some of the more affluent migrants are taking different routes. In some cases, middle-class migrants from Brazil and Venezuela are taking flights to Mexico and then making the last leg of the trip by cab or bus. Alicia Caldwell, immigration reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how some are flying to the border. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I think this is a, a step too far. I think the, the governor has jumped the shark. I think that uh, he's getting now resistance from even uh, places in the in the state that were trying to, to be supportive. Joining us now is Mitchell Furman, economy reporter at the Texas Tribune. Thanks for joining us, Mitchell. Thanks for having me. Well, there's a lot of confusion going on in Texas right now when it comes to vaccine mandates. Obviously, President Biden has the mandates in order for, you know, on the federal side of things and and people that do business with the government. He also has that, you know, upcoming mandate going for companies with more than 100 people. But the Texas governor, Greg Abbott, he just signed a (laughs) bill banning vaccine mandates all over the place for even for private businesses. And now nobody knows what to do, it seems like. So, uh, Mitchell, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing. The federal order is also not just for companies with more than 100 employees. It's also for anyone who enters into contract work with the federal government, which means lots of companies in Texas, including American Airlines, Southwest Airlines, just dozens of companies that if they want to do work with the federal government, they will have to prove that their employees are all vaccinated. So that's another piece of this. So, you know, the governor earlier this week announced that any entity will not be allowed to require vaccination for employees or customers. And, you know, there were no carve outs for those federal contractors that I mentioned. There were no carve outs for nursing homes, which were struggled big time during the pandemic with their residents and with their workforce. And the federal rule announced in August requires all nursing home employees to be vaccinated in order for their facilities to continue receiving Medicare and Medicaid funding. Those are critical pieces for those places. So it's a confusing moment in Texas. Unemployment lawyers are trying to sort this out as their clients fall into one or both or multiple buckets. Um, On the ban that Governor Abbott signed, what's the punishment for violating that? The order that Abbott handed down says that 
entities can be fined up to $1,000. It is apparently that would be a one-time fine, but it was vague in the order and it is unclear who would actually be doing the enforcing of that. Would that be the state's attorney general? Would that be local district attorneys? We've asked Abbott's office for clarification on these and other other questions, but without clarification, we haven't heard back. So without right. clarification from them, it, you know, all we can do is kind of quote the order as written. Going on with the Abbott law that he signed, it basically lets you get out of these vaccine requirements for a number of different reasons. You know, you can say it's a medical reason. You can say uh, you can even say that uh, you've had COVID before and you don't have to get the vaccine because you, you're protected, even though you know, experts really say that's not necessarily the case. You know, you have antibodies, but you're not necessarily protected against getting it again. Abbott basically expanded the exemptions that employees can use to get out of potentially, you know, getting uh, being required to, to receive the vaccine from their employer. The order kind of contradicts itself on some fronts, and which is why some employment lawyers think that this will eventually be tied up in the courts. And one employment lawyer at Houston yesterday told me that he thinks this is unconstitutional and unenforceable. We'll see. The, Abbott has asked the legislature, the state legislature, to kind of draft this into law. And, you know, we'll see if that also hits legal snags, if and when that does happen. It's, it's confusing because it can, contradicts itself. on, and, and, and so, therefore, it's kind of hard to make, like, definitive analysis of like, you know, who, because it, it puts employers in, tri in tricky positions because it allows employees more options to fight back. Like you said, mm -hmm. companies could very, big companies especially could take a $1,000 hit, no problem. But a larger issue is that they could be dealing with scores of employees who maybe previously didn't have the tools to fight back against getting a vaccine, you know, if, if they didn't want it to be required, they couldn't really do much about it. Now Abbott kind of gave them more cover. What's been the reaction to all this? Because, you know, uh, Governor Abbott prides himself on being pro-business, Texas, very pro-business, right? But, you know, this is a rule directly impacting things that they may want to do. And you mentioned Southwest and, uh, not, uh, and American Airlines, you know, they said they're still going to go through with their mandates. The, a prominent Texas economist in Waco, Ray Perryman, said in an email yesterday when I asked him about this, that this decision is unhelpful for the state economy as it recovers from you know the economic impacts of the pandemic. He kind of went into the hallmarks of capitalist economy is the ability of you know the private sector to make decisions without government intervention. And you know he he said how it's kind of difficult for him to see how forcing companies to do this is is a compelling public benefit. Mitchell Furman, economy reporter at the Texas Tribune. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And then you add on top the sort of normal growth in the labor market that, that would have occurred over the last year and a half. So economists say we really got to work our way out of that hole and gain more jobs in that a month to kind of be back on track with the recovery here. Joining us now is Eli Rosenberg, labor reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Eli. Thanks so much for having me. 
Let's talk about some jobs numbers that we got uh, from this past month and kind of some of uh, what we're seeing in all of that. Not many jobs were added. Only 194,000 jobs were added in September. And uh, what we're seeing is uh, we're seeing a lot of women dropping out of the workforce again, you know, having to deal with a lot of school-related things. Child care situations is a huge issue. And, uh, you know, obviously people are just holding out still, holding out for a better job, better paying job, things like that. So, Eli, what are we seeing with these uh, latest numbers that we got? The report you're referencing there, uh, September's job report, uh, as you pointed out, was pretty disappointing. 194,000 jobs were added for the month well below sort of estimates around the 500,000 range. Um, And just to put that in context a little bit, 194,000 jobs for the month is sort of akin to the numbers we were seeing uh, even before the pandemic. That would have been a fine month. Uh, But now we're talking about being in a hole of about 5 million jobs from what we had before the pandemic. And then you add on top the sort of normal growth in the labor market that, that would have occurred over the last year and a half. So economists say we really got to work our way out of that hole and gain more jobs in that a month to kind of be back on track with the recovery here. Women are a big part of this story. Uh, 309,000 women over the age of 20 dropped out of the labor force, meaning they quit. They stopped looking for work. I mean, that's that's a huge number there. Yeah, so September, you know, was supposed to be this big month where the labor force really got back on track. We saw some good growth over the summer. It kind of slowed down in August. But people were really hoping that in September, with the kind of full reopening of schools and kind of the return to work and back to the kind of formal rhythms of life, that this would allow a lot of people, particularly parents and mothers, who'd been out of the labor force, who'd left the labor force potentially to take care of their kids or help them with virtual schooling and stuff like that to really get back out there, look look for jobs and uh, start working again. That didn't happen. Like you said, 300,000 women actually left the labor force for the month. So just a huge disappointment there and a sign, again, that you know we're pretty, pretty far from a return to uh, whatever the new normal is going to look like. You know, a lot of the jobs, unfortunately, that are available are things in hospitality. You know, we're trying to rebuild the restaurant industry and and things like that. You know, so a lot of people are hesitant to go back to that stuff. You know, a lot of low-wage workers are just saying, hey, it's been bad for so many years. It's stressful conditions. We're just not going back. We're going to hold out for something better. So this is kind of the other angle of things. We're still seeing a lot of pain in that sector. Yeah, that's right. And it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of different kind of complicated issues going on. You know, we saw politically that unemployment benefits were largely sort of blamed for being the cause of the labor market woes. There's not necessarily evidence that that has been a strong hold on the labor force. We're seeing, like we talked about, sort of child care issues being a pressure for people. Um, You know, if they're forced with a choice of potentially low-paying job uh, and having to pay, you know, equal, if not more than that, to pay for someone to watch their kid. They're often choosing to stay home. We're seeing that a lot of people still have concerns about health uh, in workplaces when they need to work face-to-face, particularly uh, as the virus kind of has been surging out there. And yes, we're also seeing some people just reevaluating what they did for a living, uh, particularly in the kind of low-wage sector. You know, the pandemic really shined a light on the plight of, you know, what, what we're being called essential workers, workers who worked in sort of low-wage capacities, but uh, providing essential services to our country, not necessarily getting things like sick pay or a $15 minimum wage. And now we are seeing some signs that workers just, the trade-off isn't worth it to them, whether it's uh, 
losing that ability to take care of a family member or their kid or having to go back and uh, risk their health in a workplace that isn't isn't paying them what they think is a fair wage. So there's definitely some sign that people are shaking things up out there. There's still optimism that things will uh, are definitely going to pick up. Maybe a little bit too much optimism. I think that's kind of been plaguing us as we've been trying to get back from the pandemic, right? Everybody's looking for something huge to happen. But, you know, this is just kind of uh, a lot of people are saying, you know, a fall and winter jobs boom could be on the way, too. No one ever said this was going to be easy. And uh, it's pretty clear that this kind of rubber band snap back to whatever things look like in, you know, January, February 2019 isn't happening. That being said, you know, before the Delta variant started surging, uh, we saw really healthy job growth in July and June uh, in May as well. For the year, I think we've averaged about 500 jobs being added a month. So, you know, the recovery has made a lot of progress. But like you point out, this kind of confusing paradigm where we have more than 10 million job openings being reported out there and a smaller number, but still significant number of unemployed people looking for work, just sort of getting everyone back out there and into the right job is proving to be a little more complicated than people thought. I think it's largely due to the fact that we still have a public health crisis and uh, we have had this watershed change over the last year that's playing out in ways we're, we're all just starting to learn about. Eli Rosenberg, labor reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Aid workers at shelters have noticed a difference in who's arriving. Folks with with more resources, and again, these are not rich people, but they are richer than their poorer neighbors. Joining us now is Alicia Caldwell, immigration reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Alicia. Thanks for having me. Wanted to check in on what's going on with immigration. You know, when a lot of people think about uh, migrants coming to the United States and crossing through Mexico, they're thinking of months-long journeys. They're thinking of people taking that train, working with coyotes, all sorts of different things. But we're also seeing an interesting middle-class migration coming to the United States through Mexico. We're seeing people from places like Brazil and Venezuela taking planes. They'll fly into Mexico and then make that last leg of the trip by bus or or a cab or something and cross into the U.S. So, Alicia, what are we seeing with all this? Right. So, you know, it's it's important to note the majority are still traveling by foot. Everybody, generally speaking, is using a smuggler in some capacity or another. You can't really cross the U.S. border with Mexico without someone's permission and payment generally. But yeah, there's this South American middle class that while it's not an American middle class, you know, it's, they have more resources than some of their neighbors, particularly from Central America or Haitians who had been living for several years in South America. They have passports and they're able to navigate the border or, or that trip rather via airplane, hopscotching in some cases around South America into Mexico. In other cases, you know, from Brazil, it's relatively easy to fly direct into Mexico City or even Cancun. And we've heard this for a couple of months now, and we've had, you know, issues of this sort in the past, but it's, it's starting to creep up again. Where are we hearing this from? Who's, uh, who's uh, telling these stories? Well, one, migrants themselves are telling this story. They, I spoke to several people who described just that. They, they had come from Brazil or Venezuela, and they had made their way via airplane, a trip that took, you know, generally just a couple of days, whereas by foot and, you know, a series of cars and trains and taxis and so on can take months. So migrants themselves are telling us this, but also, you know, aid workers at shelters have noticed a difference in who's arriving. 
folks with with more resources and again these are not rich people but they are richer than their poorer neighbors they're arriving in better condition better physical condition their clothing is not necessarily something that needs to be tossed away they have a little bit of stuff with them they also have by and large you know they're they're arriving to shelters after being released from like immigration authorities ready to roll they've got plane tickets booked in many cases they're off to reunite with relatives or friends already in the United States. And those arrangements aren't necessarily pre-made, but they're made between the time they're released from immigration authorities and when they arrive at shelters. And also what we're seeing, I mean, from these countries where they're coming from, right? South America and the Caribbean last year lost about 26 million jobs. So, I mean, that's pretty huge for what's going on out there. And, And you're right, they might have more resources, but they still feel compelled enough to, you know, make the trip down and see what they can do out here. So that's part of the, the issue, too. It's these countries here are just not giving them what they what they need anymore. The COVID pandemic hit everybody worldwide, right? We all experienced it ourselves. The greatest economic contraction in the world was in Latin America and the Caribbean. And so this middle class of some of these Latin American countries who would not have necessarily migrated in years past. This was sort of the final straw for them. As one source in my story described, it's a big decision to go from middle class, having some resources in your own country, to being effectively undocumented in the United States. Because just because these folks will be released and allowed to proceed with an immigration claim here in the U.S. doesn't give them resources. They won't necessarily immediately be able to work. They're going to have to rely on friends and relatives, whatever meager savings they may have. So you're going from having potentially a stable house, maybe a a small business in some cases, you've made the decision that that's no longer viable or your business has had to close because of that steep contraction. And this is now your option. Are a lot of them still getting turned away because of things like Title 42 and other programs like that? No, because Title 42 is kind of complicated. Ultimately, Mexico gets to say who gets to come back into Mexico. Obviously, Mexican citizens... They all get returned, generally speaking. By and large, Mexico has said they will accept most Central Americans with some limitations depending on on the region in Mexico. But by and large, folks from Brazil, folks from Colombia, and even Haiti, they're not always accepted back by the Mexican government. And that's their purview, right? They get to decide who's going to be repatriated back to their territory by the U.S. So what happens is it's complicated to repatriate somebody quickly to Venezuela or to Brazil. Right now, the U.S. is still not accepting, generally speaking, travel from Brazil into the U.S. So sending folks back to Brazil becomes complicated. Again, same with Venezuela. We don't actually have any consular or diplomatic offices open in Venezuela right now. And ultimately, a large portion of those folks are able to proceed into the United States with notices to appear back in court. It's not a, you know, just a, hey, go on, there's the airport. You are processed, your fingerprints are taken, your photograph is taken, you're given this, this court notice to report back. In some cases, the head of household is given an ankle bracelet to track their movements, but it's a years-long process to resolve an immigration claim. Alicia Caldwell, immigration reporter at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.